You're listening to Big Table, a podcast about books and conversation, presented by Invisible Republic, Hattonbeard Press, Dub Lab, and Gold Diggers in Los Angeles. I'm your host, JC Gable. For each episode, we speak to one author about a singular book in a long-form interview. Each interview is then followed by a brief reading, sometimes from the same book being discussed, sometimes by a like-minded title and a different author. But every episode does retain a loose theme throughout and is inspired by the work of radio host and oral historian Studs Turkle. Thanks for listening. Growing Up Underground, published by Princeton Architectural Press, is no ordinary memoir and no chronological trek through the hills and valleys of legendary art director, educator, and design critic Stephen Heller's colorful life. Instead, it's a coming-of-age tale whereby, with luck and circumstance, he finds himself in certain curious places at critical times during the 1960s and 1970s in the counterculture of New York City. This entertaining and enlightening story of Heller's adventures begins at the age of 16, as he solidifies his work as an art director, graphic designer, cartoonist, and writer, through stints at the New York Review of Sex, Screw, Mobster Times, The East Village Other, The New York Ace, and The New York Free Press, until becoming the youngest art director and occasional illustrator in the history of the New York Times op-ed page in 1974, at age 24. Since then, Heller's design palette has not only expanded greatly, but he's also, over time, become one of the most prolific writers on the history of graphic design. He's published over 100 books on design in the last 30 years, and is currently the co-chair of the MFA Designer as Author Department at SVA in New York City. And, it should be noted, he still pens the visuals column for the New York Times Book Review. Heller spoke to us from his home in New York City, in mid-December 2022. Here's my conversation with Stephen Heller discussing Growing Up Underground, his new memoir. The title has a really, uh, I guess, kind of unique kind of phraseology that is almost like, like a badge of honor. And I think in the book you even say that it's Richard Farina-inspired. Um, and I'm curious how, how you arrived at, at the title. Well, I had done a story uh, called A Youth in the Youth Culture. And um, I didn't know where it went. By that, I mean it was published, I think, in UNLC uh, originally many years ago. And somebody... Uh, digitized it and every time I'd go in looking for a copy of that story because uh, people were asking me for it I would go to this website that I googled uh, and I would google youth underground youth counterculture because I forgot what the headline was and um, through that process uh, of trying to find my own work online, I came up with growing up underground. It was just, it just kind of flew in to my head. And I thought if I ever do a memoir of that period, uh, 
that would be the right title for it. In your prologue, um, you write about how really blind luck kind of put you in, quote, intriguing places with curious people from the mid-60s to the mid-70s, which for listeners, that is sort of the range of this book. It's not a whole memoir of your whole career. It's really just that decade from the mid-60s to the mid-70s. And so you were between the ages of 16 and your mid-20s. You have various roles as art director, graphic designer, cartoonist, and of course now writer as well. And this was all in the sort of center of the New York underground culture at the time, which I think younger people have a hard time understanding how revolutionary this was, the idea that you could kind of start your own paper or magazine. Um, And that was partially due to the technology of the time, but also the affordability of mass media, which really only cropped up in the post-war years. And and so I'm I'm curious, just, you know, uh, you write about this in the book, but it seems like this was almost like a, a call to arms t- for you that you were drawn to all this because you didn't just work at one of these publications. We'll get into a little bit later, all the different outlets. Um, you know, but it really seemed to sort of like be in your blood. You know, you do one job during the day and then on nights you'd go do another job. And I'm, I'm curious if you could recall for us a little bit, just sort of the pull of how exciting those times were. Well, the times were, a change in, as some well-known uh, former folk singer wailed, uh, it was a change in for me because I was entering uh, a pubescent period. Um, at that time, uh, there was a lot of focus on young people. Uh, the ability to take part uh, in BNs or boulevarding um, in the East Village and the West Village was there for the taking. And uh, it made me feel like I belonged to something, even though uh, I've always followed that Groucho Marx joke. Uh, I'd never join a club that would have me as a member. Um, and I, I actually kind of follow that, but, uh, during the, those mid sixties, I was kind of a lonely kid and I, I wanted some companionship and, uh, I wanted it in such a way that, um, there was a specialness about it and that I was part of that specialness. So it was a matter of survival. It was an existential issue for me. Uh, do I just stay at home and watch TV or do I become something bigger than myself, join something bigger than myself? And that kept me uh, going downtown from Stuyvesant Town where I grew up on uh, 20th Street and Avenue C down into the what's now called the East Village. Uh, and then over to the West Village, where I walked the streets along with other people who were beginning to look like uh, hippies and uh, going into clubs and uh, coffee houses that were there and just taking part in something that was of my generation. Now, you talk in the book about a fair amount of schooling that you had. But at the end of the day, 
you know, you consider yourself a self-taught designer, art director, writer, illustrator. And it seems like the on-the-job training that you got at all these various publications was really almost a better finishing school than the formal education. And of course, this may seem paradoxical to some, knowing that you've taught at SVA for many years and elsewhere. Um, and I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Well, I went to uh, a couple of schools, prep schools. I even went briefly in summers to a military school. Um, I was not a happy camper as uh, a kid. And uh, part of that had to do with the schools that I was going to, uh, including one called McBurney, uh, which was a private boys' school on the Upper West Side. And uh, I just couldn't buckle down and study unless it was something I really was interested in or I was afraid of some consequence. Um, at McBurney, I had a traumatic episode that I write about in the book, and that changed my attitude and and ultimately my my life, and then went on to this progressive school called Walden, uh, which was also another life changer, and then on to NYU, where um, the fallback uh, major was always English. So I studied as an English major for a year and a half or so, um, but I wasn't getting anything out of it. I uh, I liked to read. I liked Russian literature, uh, but I didn't like to study. I, I didn't. I liked to learn, but I didn't like to do the work that required the learning. And so um, it was at NYU that I started working at underground papers, including one called Screw. And uh, I had done a comic strip for Screw, and uh, it included my philosophy professor uh, and his sidekick, St. Anselm. And somehow NYU got hold of this issue of Screw, the first issue, and called me in to speak to a psychiatrist uh, believing that what I was involved in had some sort of perverse connotation and that I embarrassed my philosophy professor um, was uh, kind of social vandalism. And uh, they were going to throw me out if I didn't take uh, some sessions with this uh, shrink, which I refused to do, so I got thrown out, and I ended up trying to preserve my draft status as a student and got into uh, School of Visual Arts, where I run graphic programs, uh, MFA programs now, um, and I never went to class here. It was a good, great opportunity to uh, learn from some terrific masters, including Harvey Kurtzman, but uh, I just couldn't concentrate. I couldn't be a student, and I wasn't, in my opinion, a very good artist to begin with. Uh, I, I was in the illustration and cartooning department. Um, 
So I, I just worked. I got jobs by luck. Uh, I became an art director my third week into doing mechanicals for the New York Free Press. Pure, pure luck. Uh, knew nothing about what, what I had to know. I learned from a printer how to do the things that were necessary to do to get a newspaper out the door and into, onto a press. Um, and so I continued to kind of teach myself or allow people, uh, to teach me, um, Brad Holland, great American illustrator. I devote a chapter to him in the memoir as my mentor. Uh, he really served as, uh, a professor, a consigliere, uh, you name it. And I learned uh, what was involved in graphic design through him and then picked up all the other things along the way. I think, too, we should point out that nowadays things are so uh, technologically advanced that the process itself of making, um, and I guess I'm old enough to even remember this, you know, there were color separations and film being made and things needed to be typeset and everything was still cut and paste. It was a lot more difficult to art direct and design things before in design, desktop computers, desktop publishing, etc. Um, so this was not like a skill that, you know, was necessarily easy to learn. Um, but, but yet you, you know, seem to have mastered it all. And I think one of the crescendos in the book is, you know, at 24, you become the youngest art director of the New York Times op-ed page, which, you know, almost seems paradoxical looking at your portfolio, which involves screw and gay and rat and the mobster times and the East village other and the New York free press, um, which are all of these, you know, for the large, to large degree left publications, um, you know, free-spirited publications, completely the antithesis of, I guess, you know, at the time, which would have been the sort of mainstay newspaper, the New York Times. I guess where I'm going with this is that, uh, you know, there was a time, though, and you're living proof that all of that subversive work could still get you a job, you know, in the mainstream. And, And I wonder if, I don't know if that would even happen today. Oh, I think it would happen. I think it's certainly easier to uh, put a publication together now because of all the tools that you're exposed to. But um, we didn't know that there were those kinds of alternatives until, you know, Macintosh in 1984 put up their uh, first advertising showing that the world didn't need graphic designers anymore because you could do it on computer. Um, the doing of working with your hands in those days was so much, so taken for granted that everything that I did, even though it was new to me at the moment I was introduced to it, uh, was the SOP. It was standard operating procedure. Um, and, and I could buy into it. I never did it well, even into my times years, I always struggled to make things right. I've never thought of myself as a good designer. Um, but I got 
early experience. I was watching a, a Twitter post uh, this morning, and it was a young Asian girl. She must have, couldn't have been more than 10 years old playing a huge drum kit, and she was terrific. And I think of the opportunity that I had to do papers and publications starting when I was, even before 17, even before the underground press, I, I worked in briefly in an ad agency when I was 12 or 13. I didn't do much, but uh, I had the opportunity to be in one of these places. Um, and it all accumulated. It all became knowledge that kind of went into the system, uh, got churned around like food in the digestive tract, and the nutrients stayed, and the waste went away. And uh, I was able to save some of the uh, the techniques and some of, as I said, the nutrients uh, to make what turned out to be a career. And you're writing as well, which is, you know, unusual to some degree because I work with tons of graphic designers and when I talk to them, oftentimes they'll tell me they went into graphic design or art direction because they didn't like to read or they were dyslexic or they just didn't enjoy, you know, literature or English classes where, you know, you seem to have that duopoly. Uh, I love how you reference and were re-inspired by rereading Orwell uh, during the, the you know coronavirus sort of shutdown, which, you know, it seems to be, you know, the time in which you, you uh, banged this book out. Uh, and why I write in particular, which is such a wonderful thing to reread, you know, before you're about to embark on something. <laughs> um, but one passage stood out to me where you said, you know, the motivation to write for you initially was born out of uh, what you called night terrors, which you jokingly uh, write stopped, quote, thanks to a nightly anti-demon pill. And I guess my point is, is, is you were always doing graphic stuff. You start to write. You've become such a prolific author on the subject of graphic design. And I'm wondering if you could, you know, sort of expound upon a little bit, um, you know, what these night terrors were and, and, and how you found your voice as a writer as a result of them. Well, the night terrors didn't really have much to do with my writing voice. That came later. There are always stories in my head, and during the day, they kind of sleep. And at night, when I'm supposed to be sleeping, they come awake. And sometimes it's just in the form of insomnia, and I can't fall asleep at all. I just keep thinking and making notes that seem gibberish in the morning. Uh, or if I'm having a particularly uh, difficult period or uh, experience, uh, I would have these night terrors where I'd have a crazy nightmare and I would just my heart would start pumping and I'd have a panic attack, basically. Um, so the night terrors never really helped me to be a writer or find my voice. I just wanted to subsume and submerge and squelch that so that I could not have to feel so awful. Uh, what did 
profoundly influenced my writing is that I did not feel that I was as good a designer as I should be. And just by chance, some, uh, well, before chance, uh, deliberately, when I worked for some of the underground papers, I would write little blurbs and things. You know, if there was some long caption that needed to be written uh, for a photograph or an illustration to add a uh, ironic twist to the presentation, I would write it. Uh, usually it was anonymous. Um, then at a certain point, I was asked to write a few profiles of, of illustrators. And I realized I could do it because I knew the illustrators' work. I could put into to a narrative what I felt about the work, what I saw in the work, and how the work uh, was contextualized. And I just started doing a few of those. They weren't very long, 300-word type pieces. And I realized this is the point at which I should either go to back to school and learn the rules of grammar and learn how to spell, for example, um, and how to make a narrative arc and uh, how to write nonfiction and fiction. Or I could just kind of do it and see where it took me. And I opted for the latter um, because of this uh, inability to learn uh, in a in a classroom environment. Now, your parents, who you refer to, obviously, in the earlier parts of the book, seem, you know, with all the s- schools you were moving around, it seems like they were, you know, somewhat sympathetic to your plight at the time. Now, there were always, you know, overbearing parent-type things that you write about. Um, but I think, you know, you mentioned uh, the Walden School sort of like being um, a game-changer for you. In, in a lot of ways, was it this sort of, um, I guess, this progressive schooling and, and how you uh, honed your ability to self-educate, uh, you know, that really, it seems like that has really served you the best uh, in all of your pursuits? Well, what I really wanted was to be known for something. You know, it, it goes, it's it's the New York version of I want to be popular in school. And one way to be popular was to be the bad guy. And when I went to New York City public schools, I used to have my own desk in the principal's office because I was a, a terror. And I did that to get attention. And as I went through different schools, I would always do something that would bring attention to me uh, and bring shame to my parents. And uh, this was a motivating force for me. Um, I wrote ultimately because I wanted a place that was unique in um, in the society that I was in. So when I was just doing design, that was me as the kingpin of design, of graphics in these underground papers. There were a lot of writers, there were a lot of artists, but there was no designers per se uh, in the ones that I was at. Uh, So I became the focal point for design and that soothed and conquered some of my ego issues. 
um, when I more and more people became designers, or at least were headed in that path, I felt my specialness was being uh, toned down. So I switched to writing uh, because there were more designers than there were writers. And I chose graphic design and illustration to write about because nobody was doing it in a, that I could see in a particularly uh, unique manner. Uh, so it, it was, as I say, a way of getting attention, drawing attention to myself. Um, I'm going through a period now where, you know, I, I could say immodestly that I pretty much triggered along with people like Phil Meggs and, um, Roger Remington, the movement of design, graphic design history in the United States. Um, I was doing books and articles on historical issues before most people were. And when trade journalism was uh, the, the kingpin of, or the cornerstone of, of uh, design writing, and I felt, again, in that situation, I was a unique one. I was special. Uh, now everybody does it. I even co-founded a program at the School of Visual Arts to teach design writing and design criticism and research. So more and more people are doing it, and that just kind of deflates it for me. Uh, I'm actually doing less than I used to do. I used to overcompensate, and now I'm undercompensating. Yeah, I, I think you're right. You really found you were a, an early pioneer of this niche for sure, you know, as was, you know, our mutual friend and your West Coast colleague, Jim Hyman, um, you know, focused on, yeah, graphic design, illustration. And, and I think sometimes it takes a certain amount of years before this stuff becomes historical, but I think you were very apt in sort of, realizing that these histories are important. And um, just personally, I learned a lot about this stuff from reading you. Um, you know, I, your book about Alvin Lustig, uh, Born Modern, I think was, you know, a real great insight to me into figuring out what made New Directions, for instance, so visually, uh, I don't know, penetrating maybe, uh, important, you know, for its time, besides them being publishers of, you know, modernism and eventually postmodernism. But it was really the graphic design that propelled, uh, the, the imprint into, you know, I think what it is today. And interestingly, you know, the arc, and I know some of the folks doing the design for New Directions, for instance, are former students of yours, but I feel like the graphic design that they're doing now is almost rivals the time, you know, that Lustig was doing all that stuff. It's obviously a different period of, of art history and design history, but um, it's kind of come full circle. And I'm curious to see what, what, you, what you thought about that. And 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 just in general, this, um, you know, just how the, some of the stuff that you live through, you know, it sometimes takes 50 years for the museums to sort of take note and it to become, quote, art history. Yeah, when I started writing about this stuff, most design historians, uh, critics, stayed away from it. It was, you know, commercial suicide or academic suicide to do uh, 
your work, your scholarly work on commercial products. Um, Russian constructivism, data, uh, surrealism, and all these kind of avant-garde movements that had commercial um, or at least mass-produced elements to them publications, books, magazines, posters, things like that. Um, those were kind of getting through the uh, the gatekeepers of art history. Uh, but they weren't making the case for the extension or the continuum of that history uh, into, say, the underground press or uh, other things that were very much like it, you know, fluxus. Uh, was considered marginal to art historians. And once, uh, and I wanted graphic design in its most commercial form to be looked at as, in part, art. Uh, and um, that I actually was lucky enough to find that it wasn't that big a gap that the times had become ripe for new uh, scholarly research that all the big subjects had been kind of covered already by doctoral students and postdoctoral students. Um, so I was beginning to appear in magazines like Arts Magazine uh, or Art Forum uh, writing about commercial art. Yeah, which you, as you say, like a generation before would have been, you know, career suicide, you know, to sort of, to even suggest to include some of that stuff uh, in the canon, as it were. Um, you know, one other interesting thing about you that I didn't know until reading the book, uh, but just maybe assumed for pure, you know, just kind of stereotypical reasons is that you, you know, have never really done any drugs, you don't smoke, and um Yet you were, you know, a part of all of these underground publications where I'm sure a lot of that was going on. Um, so, you know, you were sober, you know, throughout all of this. And, you know, I don't remember who said it, but, you know, that phrase, you know, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. Uh, I can't remember who said that. But um, but but you were there and you were sober. And that was highly unusual for, I'm sure, a lot of your cohorts at the time. And. Um, and I'm wondering if, you know, you could sort of speak to that a little bit, too, because, you know, I think a lot of people associate a lot of the publications you worked for as part of the sex, drugs and rock and roll era. And, uh, you know, maybe there was some sex and rock and roll, but there was no drugs. Well, you know, it becomes stereotyped and uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll, drop in, drop out. Uh, various phrases that get used uh, and then co-opted were uh, helped mold people's perceptions of what went on. But uh, there was, you know, when when people were working on the papers, uh, sure, some of them smoked dope uh, to stay awake or to because it became habitual in some fashion or other. Um, but it wasn't necessarily the the case that it was totally drugged out. Uh, there was more drugs, I suppose, on the West Coast with the underground 
comics artists than there were was on the East Coast. But, you know, at East Village Other on Paste Up Night, joints were flying all over the place. Um, I stayed off of it because I have a very strange uh, agreement with myself. It's kind of superstition. It's kind of um, irrational rationality. Um, and that is, if I ever took uh, a narcotic uh, or a drug of any kind, my life would go to pot, literally and figuratively. Um, and it was just something that, I don't know how it began. It probably began because I was, you know, we were bombarded in the 50s and early 60s with anti-drug or anti-marijuana uh, leaflets from school. Uh, you know, what would happen to your brain on drugs was a commercial that happened in the uh, late 60s. But the ideas were there, and I kind of bought into the propaganda. So I took it to heart. Uh, but I got contact highs. I acted out as though I were uh, part of the the stone set. Uh, I was not as jolly as some of my friends who were more actively drug-taking. Um, I was kind of uptight and uh, uh, withdrawn, in fact. And as a shrink once told me, uh, He's, and I write this in the book, you should start drinking because it'll make you more social. And I I did that for a little while and it made me much more social, but it also made me much more of a fool. And I stopped drinking when I found myself uh, in two situations. One, uh, t taking my pants off in front of Buckingham Palace one one evening, and the other was running down McDougal Street without any clothes on. One other thing I you you note I think sort of towards the end of the book was that every designer needs to have a Dada period, which I thought was a really great metaphor. And I'm wondering if you could sort of expound upon that idea a little bit, because I think, you know, it, it, it makes certainly makes a lot of sense with regards to how your you know, career unfolded as an art director and designer. Well, I think everybody has to have a period where they're allowed uh, or, or they insist on uh, chaos, uh, where they insist on experimentation. Uh, where they insist on breaking rules so that they can determine what those rules really are and what they're about and why they exist or why they shouldn't exist. Uh, I think it's true of anybody in a creative field. You know, it's too easy to go to school, learn the rules, follow the rules, and be beholden to those rules. Uh, it's not a profound statement. It's just a statement of uh, reality that, you know, there, there are so many art forms that uh, either are wed to their times and look passe after a period or are so out of their times uh, that they are, for lack of a better term, ugly. Uh, 
I did a, a piece that got me into a lot of uh, hot water called Cult of the Ugly, uh, where I was taking to task uh, what were called new, new wave or, or postmodern designers, people who were trying things that hadn't been attempted before. And I was in a mood where I wasn't in the mood for that kind of experimentation. So I found myself at odds with a younger generation. Um, and that kind of went counter to my idea of everybody should have a data period. Because uh, I was in favor of this kind of data chaos. But when I saw it in practice, I took a stand against it in favor of the previous data period. Data, of course, is an art movement of a certain time, but the data as metaphor keeps changing from generation to generation. And it doesn't mean being a supporter of a, a, my personal data, data doesn't necessarily mean you accept or like all forms of data. Growing Up Underground, a memoir of counterculture New York by Stephen Heller, published by Princeton Architectural Press, is out now. For the reading this episode, Stephen Heller will read from his new memoir. This is Chapter 6, Al Goldstein, Porno Satirista. At age 17, I was the first art director of Screw, the pioneering underground sex review that helped trigger the 1960s sexual revolution. It was co-founded by the outrageous Al Goldstein, who was also a trusted friend. For the better part of my subsequent career, in accordance with my dear Grandma Ray's deathbed wish, she was never very happy with this episode in my career. I've ostensibly tried to distance myself publicly from this dubious part of my past. But in truth, I've used any flimsy excuse to tell my war stories from the porno chic trenches. I first met Al when he showed up at the New York Free Press hawking a story he had written about being an industrial spy hired to steal secret documents. Although I illustrated the story for the cover of the Freep, I had little contact with him until he cooked up a scheme with Jim Buckley, the Freep's managing editor and typesetter, to start the new sex paper. Al was hilariously funny and disarmingly ingratiating. We became immediate friends, the oddest of couples. He bragged about his sexcapades to me, and in him I confided my adolescent angst, for which he provided mostly useless but amusing advice. In 2006, when the New York Times book review editors 
who had heard my screw tales countless times, asked me to review I, Goldstein, My Screwed Life, the autobiography by Al Goldstein, with Josh Allen Friedman. I initially declined. Reason one, Al and I had known each other for a long time, and the cardinal rule at the book review was never to review anyone you knew well, friend or foe. Reason two, I was convinced my wayward teenage exploits would be dredged up throughout his book, since not only was I present at Screw's inception and other best-forgotten events, but also I had quit the magazine tearfully after fighting with Al about an inane logo he wanted me to use. I had then co-founded a short-lived competitor, the New York Review of Sex and Politics. It folded after 20 issues, prompting our distributor to claim I was the only person in New York who could make a sex paper fail. A few years later, I returned for what was a two-year stint at Screw. The health benefits and profit sharing were quite generous, and I received other unconventional perquisites that only a rascal like Al could conceive. It was a time when it achieved a high circulation and peak media attention. No doubt the result of my inventive art direction. Reason three, after leaving Screw for the Times in 1974, I was subpoenaed as a hostile prosecution witness at Al's federal obscenity trial in Wichita, Kansas. My defiant testimony did not help the government's case. Al was acquitted. I read I. Goldstein closely to see how I was represented, and to my utter bewilderment, I was mentioned only twice, both in the same short paragraph, along with two other art directors who also later moved from Screw to the Times. Heller was so young, Al writes, that during one of, the, one of our busts, he was thrown in a juvenile lockup. In fact, I was busted not at Screw, but at the New York Review of Sex and Politics, and I wasn't sent to juvenile lockup, but placed in adult lockup with the prostitutes. Moreover, Al says not a word about my groundbreaking typography for Screw, nor about my design for his other publications, Mobster Times, Gadget, Smut, Smut from the Past, and Gay. There's also nothing about how I hired the best illustrators from Time, Newsweek, and the New York Times, knowing they would give Screw some legitimacy. Nor any hint that I once asked Salvador Dali to design an entire issue, which he considered for two weeks and then demurred, saying the $3,000 fee the highest we ever offered for any artist, was too low. I. Goldstein contains a photograph I believe I should be in. I vividly recall the shoot and everyone in it, but I'm not there. I'm guessing I was, wasn't was airbrushed out, but rather that uh, the published picture was taken for a s split second when I left the room. Well, that was the final insult. 
realizing my credibility would be forever challenged at the New York Times book review, I accepted the review assignment, if only to set the record straight. To support Big Table, go to invisiblerepublic.org and click on the Big Table link. There you will find many ways to financially support this podcast. And thanks in advance. Big Table is produced and presented by Hattenbeard Press and Dub Lab in Los Angeles and is written and edited by yours truly, J.C. Gable. Our sound designer and editor is Matea Bame. Our engineer is Jacob Ross. Special thanks to Alejandro Ale Cohen and Mark Frosty McNeil from Dub Lab for early encouragement and support and to file sharing company WeTransfer for helping sponsor this experiment in audio storytelling. Big Table is also funded in part by Invisible Republic, a nonprofit arts organization based in Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York. You can find out more about their programming and publications at invisiblerepublic.org. Thanks again for listening.